Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we would love to hear from you and have you on the programme. Coming up next on today's show, on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital, is an interview with Alex Fellows, director at Oliver's Barbers, a barbershop based in Manchester. Um, Alex is an established business leader and project manager with experience in various areas, including credit control, order to cash, accounts payable, P2P, commercial, operations and supply chain, as well as an extensive background in business transformation. Um, Alex has been with Oliver's Barbers since 2019. Um, Alex, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thanks so much for joining us. Yep, real pleasure, Alex, joining us um, on the show today. Um, and it's a lovely day um, for the podcast as well, I'm sure. Um, lovely weather here in the capital. I'm sure it's the same um, up north. Um I think um, a good place to sort of start on the show today would be by addressing sort of the elephant in the room here. And that's the fact that we record this podcast, don't we, on July the 20th, 2021. And we've just seen yesterday the restrictions, well, almost all remaining COVID restrictions lifted in England um, after... 15 or 16 months of real turmoil for businesses all over the country. Um, I suppose for a business like yours, you're quite relieved that sort of full capacity is able to return now, but I imagine that there'll be just a little bit of caution as well, won't there, moving forward? Um, Definitely. I mean, there'll be a lot of of caution moving forward. I mean, I'm not going to change as many um, of the restrictions as I want, as I'm allowed to do, let's say. I'm still going to keep hand sanitising things in place. and we're still going to keep a minimum of people in the in the actual bars itself, and that's how we've worked for the past eighteen months. And that's how, well, when we've been allowed to open, but that's been how we've worked. So I'm not going to stop that. Um, I'm going to continue that just for people's safety and people's peace of mind. Let's say. Yeah, and I think it helps sort of keep sort of people's mental health and well-being stable um, in terms of calming their anxieties, doesn't it? Because particularly from the early days of the pandemic, where there was a lot of uncertainty about contracting the virus and what risks it would have, um, it's put people off yeah. sort of coming into work, hasn't it? And so keeping some form of safety measures in place is going to be critical moving forward, isn't it? Um, within Definitely. sort of business leadership at large, um, mental health and well-being has really been amplified as an issue during the pandemic. So just how important is it in your view, both in terms of looking after your own, but also that of those people around you? Um, well, coming from somebody that suffers quite um, badly with the mental health, especially at the moment, um, and prior to COVID, I think it's really important to make sure that people feel secure, I think is the word that I like to use, because I like to feel that people are doing their bit to enable um, everybody else to do their bit and I think it's a chain of events and I find that if I do my bit to make sure that people feel warm, welcome, comfortable, safe and um, my, you know, my, my environment is clean and they can see that that's happening and they can see that the barber's taking those precautions then I feel safe in my, my own self that I feel like I'm doing a good job but that, that customer then feels that then I'm doing my bit to make sure that they're okay um, so I think it has to be seen um, I think that people have to know I think saying things is, is, is one thing, but doing it is another. I like to yeah. do it in front of the barber. So we like to clean down the stations before each customer. So while that customer stood there, 
that we do that so we, they know yeah exactly so they're seeing the sort of efforts and the measures that are being put in place there and you've also mentioned already that these are things that have been done since you reopened and are going to be continuing um, for the foreseeable future for sure um but yeah. obviously the, the the hairdressing industry um is one that has been hit by sort of closures as well as anything else over the course of the last year so with that being also an issue um and presumably having to sort of put members of staff on furlough how has the business sort of held up in the wake of that well, this has been the biggest challenge. Um, we opened our doors um, in 2019, so we didn't have much of the trading period before, mm. before COVID kicked in, um, which meant that we fought for the customers that we reopened, we opened with, um, and then we closed, reopened, closed, reopened. Um, and actually, in that year, it spent more time closed than we did open. So that was a massive challenge. But at the same time, my business plan for 2019 never included any additional borrowing or anything to see me through an event like this because it wasn't. I know it was expected, it was, you know, scientific papers did say that this was coming, but a barber's, you never think that he's going to plan for the worst, and, and that being the worst. So my barber's is, is, is in dire straits, to be quite honest. Um, and I'm having to make additional borrowing, I my bounce back loan. That is now being repaid. Um, so on top of that, having to put my own money in again um, to keep it alive. And the only way out of this now is to grow um, and is to take on another business. And I feel that that's something that's too soon for my business especially. Um, but I'm taking that on board and I'm going for it anyway. Um, and I'm looking to purchase an existing profit-making business to be able to cover my outgoings at Oliver's. Um, and this is all additional stress, pressure, and, and you know, more money. Um, and a Bahabas is not meant to be thought of as something that's so... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's so intense when it comes down to financial planning and business planning. It is, it is a simple process, really customer comes in you cut their hair they leave and I found that my planning and my financial planning has turned into something that I used to do before as a consultant for another you know a million pound business mm. multi-million pound business so I've had to put my skills to use um, and yeah it's been it's, it's, it's stressful it's I mean my mental health is suffering at the, at the point of it but again we can't really blame anybody for COVID it's not a, it's not a point finger at um, but it's just been an absolute nightmare and it still continues to be, and I'm sure it will be for the next year or two. Um, it's upsetting. It's, it's, you know, I'm taking everybody with me, like my other half. I'm really lucky that he's got a business that actually flourished during COVID. Um, so, you know, there's, there's additional borrowing from that company to mine, and it seems to be getting worse at the moment, and I think it will get worse. And I think two years down the line, we'll, we might just be thinking, yeah, this is where we're starting to you know, break even, let's say, or, or level off, but at the moment i just can't see that end yeah it's it's taking a risk isn't it of course going and purchasing yeah. another business to sort of try and sort of balance the books as it were and i think when it comes to sort of leadership particularly in the context of industry in many ways i think we have to sort of take risks and we have to sort of embrace the outcome of that be that success be that failure because i suppose without sort of taking risks and maybe suffering setbacks along the way i mean we ultimately can't learn can we and I think the pandemic's been a significant learning curve for everyone and every day in business is a learning curve, even sort of pre-COVID and long after COVID has gone. Yeah, working with projects along the line of his career, I mean, lessons learned was a massive, was a massive part of it at the end of the project. At the moment, my, my lessons learned, I mean, the staff are all, are all self-employed at the moment, but I am taking on a new business that is all employed um, members of staff. So I'm looking at it from a you know, from a, a director's point of view, where I sit there and go, 
yeah, my staff need to make the employee for future benefits towards them. To make sure that I looked after them because there was literally nothing I could do with my self-employed members of staff. Thankfully, they came back um, and we started again. But I just think, as a leader, it's really difficult to have those questions as it has, you know, from from all of them. When we open, when when can we open? When can what do we have to do with this? You know, how many times do we have to You know, the questions are endless. My research is, is you know, it's just never ending. Mm-hmm. And when the restrictions have lowered. And my leadership, again, is going, we're not going to do what they say because I can see this risk. I can see the cases are going in a certain direction. I can, you know, I read the news. I'm not, I'm not going to sit in, in the dark. But I find it really difficult that, you know, as, as leaders in, in, now, now in, in, in the hairdressing industry, we don't have someone specifically telling us or speaking to us around what we should for certain be doing, what are guidelines, what are, well, you know, what's the best course of action. We've had to basically guess. And I think we've had certain people come out and say, you know, things need to be done a certain way, but there's never been any actual 100% simplified guidance. I mean, the guidance you print off at the moment is about 70 pages long. And it's confusing and contradicting. So me as a leader, again, I've been having to decipher that myself and pushing that towards my, my staff. It's just, it's been a confusing, it's been a very stressful, it's been an upsetting time. And, you know, I think we are trying to work through it and I am trying to, to find a way out. But without my additional business that I'm purchasing and putting extra money in myself again, I'm not going to get out of this. The business won't survive. Yeah, it's a challenging period, isn't it? And what you've just sort of talked about there as well is it really epitomizes that phrase that it's lonely at the top sometimes, isn't it? When you're sort of sucked into survival mode and people are looking to you at the top for inspiration, it's difficult, isn't it? To sort of find that kind of motivation yourself. And when you're in that survival mode, almost look after your own mental health and well-being because it can so easily be neglected when you're sort of in that sort of mode of running a business 24 seven and you're not able to sort of step away and recharge the batteries as and when you need to. So I can imagine from that point of view, it's also incredibly challenging. Yeah. I mean, my mental health um, pre-COVID wasn't great. And the reason I actually opened um, Barbers was to come away from my previous career, which was extremely hard work. Um, I had a lot of responsibility Um, and I was saving a lot of businesses, a lot of money. And I thought, hang on, I can do this for myself. That was the initial reason I went for this. You know, went went to open the barbers. Now coming, you know, along through the design of, of getting it, my business plan to actually open him was fantastic. And then when this hit, I had um, a lot of time being sat doing nothing because I, I was powerless. Now I have suffered from depression, um, anxiety, ADHD. So for me to be able to sit there and do nothing is really difficult. Um, and when it comes to opening again, I had everything in line. Now all my ducks in a row, I know exactly what to do. After this research um, that I put myself through, but then to be closed again, it's extremely challenging on your emotions. Um, and having to live with somebody, I, I don't think I'm over half cope. Um, but it's been a roller coaster. Is the only way I can describe that. And at the moment, I'm still not at the top of what I would call the curve, and I, you know, waiting to go down again. I'm still pushing my business forward. Um, and I'm at times given up. I've you know, I've spent the day bed going, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, and I think that goes for everybody. I mean, I've got a cousin who's a psychiatrist, and she is in the same situation where, you know, NHS might be struggling at the moment. But I don't think it's fair yet. I don't think everybody truly understands what the impact of mental health has been. Mm. 
Mm. Um, with COVID, I think that there's a lot of problems coming forward. One of my customers, his son, would not leave his apartment um, to come for his haircutting. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's not just affecting me, business owners, it's affecting absolutely everybody. That's really, really going to shine through, I think, in the next 18 months or so. And I think something that is also going to shine through in the same vein is resilience within business and also the value of those human connections that I think we've enhanced during the last 15 or 16 months. Because even though we've been apart in so many ways, we've come closer together, haven't we? We've been sort of united by the crisis. And I think that sort of strength and resilience within sort of our teams, within our businesses, those are the sort of positive aspects from this whole ordeal that we need to really use to drive us forward now, don't we? Yeah, I think that that's what we that's what we do need again. I think that people in businesses where they work across um, digital, you know, communication, so I, um, Teams, Zoom, these are the kind of um, these are the kind of programs they can use. I think they've mm. really been um, done really well out of, of the communication within Teams. I think that that's been brilliant, and I think they've moved forward. I think my challenge is my team is great. I love them, and you know, my future team will be fantastic. I know that. But I think their their resilience has been fantastic. I think they they've really, really, you know, waited and waited and waited. These guys, some of them have had no income, a bit like myself. And I've really waited and made sure that, you know, what when we do return, when we did on the twelfth April, it was fantastic, you know, we did everything right. However, if 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 at any point I seem to drop, my entire team drops. So I've really got to be that leader. I've really got to be that person that they look to to say we can do this, we can go for this. Um, And that puts, again, a bit more pressure on me. However, I'm happy with that because to put on an image is one thing, but to actually think something different when you go home is really difficult, and that's what I'm kind of doing. I'm kind of going in there to my my store going, yep, this is brilliant, we're going to get this done, this is how we're going to work, this is fantastic. But then leaving, thinking, oh, no, something else might go wrong, something else might go wrong. So I don't think it's full positivity that we need I think it's a mm. I think it's a face that we need to show to the people that work for us work with us I think we need to show that positiveness but we need to really work on it when we get home our our own maybe feelings about certain situations I mean like I said without another business I'm not going to survive so I've spent all of my time trying to prepare for something that I don't know whether it's going to work or not and that's additional borrowing that's me going you know I need to get myself in, in, into something else I need to secure another you know, for income stream. And my barbers have no idea about any of this. <laughs> and everyone, you know, I'm going to this where it's, they can see how much comes into business. We're restricted on how many barbers we can have actually working. So now that's lifted, we're increasing the number of barbers so that the income can come in and look after, you know, the outgoings of the business. Now, my barbers know that a certain unit in Manchester will cost the next amount, and they know what's coming into the business. So, you know, they, they can see that. And they know that it's not covering it as of yesterday. So they have got worries and they're really good because they're just carrying on with their work and they're being so supportive of me by doing that and not showing that they're worried. I think we're all in the same boat, I agree. And I think business leaders have a face for their staff and for their, you know, for their, for their business. And I think they have a face for when they get home with this worry. And I don't think we're ever going to stop that. That's really, really important. I think mm. people understand that the stress and the pressure that we're under, that we might put on a happy face, but it's extremely difficult right now. 
Exactly, it is. And I think that's why we need to be sort of very aware of what may be going on under the surface. But it is a given, isn't it, that leaders are going to appear level-headed and appear strong before their staff and just really keep that morale high because, indeed, that is the role that leaders have. And um, it's going to be important to try to maintain that positivity over the coming months as we enter a little bit of an uncertain period because we don't know what's going to happen with the lifting of restrictions in England, whether this is going to go well, whether eventually restrictions are going to come back. But as we sort of enter this sort of watershed moment, as it were, um, in an ideal world, if so, we pretended we had a crystal ball for a moment, Alex, um, where ideally do you see yourselves being this time in 2022? And of course, you've got um, the other business that you're taking on to focus on. But what are some of those other priorities that you think you're going to be having? My priority is to build the customer base um, that we have in Manchester. I mean, that, that's been great so far. I think we've taken on nearly 1,300 clients um, since April, which, which is brilliant. But that's to build that more, especially now we can have additional barbers within the business. Um, and see myself with the other business running smoothly. Again, it's an existing business. It's profit-making. That should be able to fund Oliver's and its additional borrowing that it had to take to stay open. Um, and hopefully, hopefully I see myself quite, quite leveled. Um, I see myself personally but more, a little bit more relaxed. Um, and I see me able to be able to concentrate on the service providing towards the customer, um, which is what I do and what I'm there for, um, is to make sure that everybody's happy. I see myself at the moment leveled out, happier, and a lot more in control. Um, if the worst was had to happen and we had to go into additional lockdowns, I genuinely, I don't know what to do in regards to that. Um, I, don't, I don't have any plans at the moment because my focus has been on positivity and trying to make things so much better that I haven't really given that thought because that thought is actually scarier mm. than, than anything I could think of right now. Like I say, let's hope it doesn't come to that. And I think we all need a dose of that positivity because it is really infectious during such times of uncertainty. And I think we all need a little bit of that. It's so, so important. We've seen the importance of mental health and well-being over the course of the last year. So trying to maintain that outlook is going to be absolutely massive. And I think as we sort of start to see the clouds clearing up a bit and we know more about what we're wading into over the coming months. I'd actually love, Alex, to welcome you back onto the programme with us just to catch up on how this project and um, this new business is getting on that you're taking on and how that's helping all of us barbers because I've enjoyed this interview and having you with us. It's been a very candid, very open and very honest interview. So thank you once again for coming on. You're more than welcome. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, lastly, Alex, just before we do um, depart, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not out of the woods with this situation yet, that's for sure. But fingers crossed that better days are ahead. You too. Um, I agree completely. Thank you very much. And I'd also extend that message to every single one of the listeners tuning into today's podcast as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others, even with the lifting of restrictions, because it does make a real, real difference in keeping people safe. Um, It was a pleasure, of course, to welcome Alex Fellows, director at Oliver's Barbers, onto today's programme. And I do hope that you all enjoyed what was a very compelling interview indeed. Um, Next up on the show, uh, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who's going to be sharing his take on the events of the pandemic as well as his hopes for the weeks ahead with the economic reopening that will be coming up shortly Lord Blunkett welcome thank you very much it's very good to be with you um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the 
crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. 
Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- cut, um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so 
on different levels. I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. 
Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. 
Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. 
Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.